Welcome to Global Health and Childhood Cancer. I'm your host, Mark Zobeck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Okay, we have a little bit of housekeeping this week in that I want to say I'm unfortunately backlogged in terms of getting podcasts out. Um, I've entered another busy time clinically, and I've found myself trying to get some research finished and demonstrate that I can finish some research, and um, hopefully that's not an unfamiliar feeling for anybody who has done research themselves. So that means that I probably won't get another podcast out for the next two or three weeks, but I do have some incredibly exciting things that I hope to release prior to PSYOP, which is uh, October 23rd through the 26th. Um, or at least that's a goal, so we will see. At any rate, today we have an incredible conversation. I have on the podcast Dr. Nikhil Bakta. Nikhil is faculty at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital and serves as the director for the Sub-Saharan Africa region in the St. Jude Global Program. So Nikhil has a unique background. Not only is he trained as an epidemiologist, and work specifically in the area of disease burden estimation, which we will talk about. But he also has training in economics, and does a lot of work looking at the finances involved in treating childhood cancer around the world. So he has a very unique perspective when it comes to questions such as how do you set the priorities of a health system? Where does global pediatric oncology fall within the priorities of the global health community? And things like that. And so today we talk about some recent research that he has produced and how it has contributed to his perspective as he sees the field of global pediatric oncology growing and changing. Like all of my conversations, it was incredibly informative, but I will say that, so I I met Nikhil when I was interviewing for fellowship, and he was joining the faculty at St. Jude, and I've watched his career developed with some interest, just because, again, so with his unique big-picture perspective, I think he has his finger well-placed on the pulse of this field. I think you'll hear that in the conversation today. So without further ado, I give you my conversation with Dr. Nikhil Bakta. Thanks for joining us on the podcast, Nikhil. If you can, could you go ahead and introduce yourself? Um, who are you? Where do you work? And what do you find yourself mainly doing with your time professionally? Yes, and, uh, and thanks so much for having me on. Uh, my name is Nikhil Bakta. I'm a pediatric hematologist oncologist, um, working as mostly clinically in our leukemia division, but the bulk of my time is actually within our Department of Global Pediatric Medicine, where I lead two major programs. Uh, The first is our Disease Burden and Simulation Unit, which is a um, research program specifically focused more on the epidemiology of childhood cancer, both burden as well as costing and a variety of other factors. And then the secondly is I'm the regional director of our Sub-Saharan African region which um, is a new region for St. Jude and St. Jude Global, um, where we are actively working with partners uh, to really focus on quality and quality improvement activities. Very good. And so you're faculty on St. Jude, but you found yourself doing more of this global work. I'm just curious, you have a a unique niche in terms of being a a clinical uh, hemonc doctor as well as a researcher. And so how did you find yourself looking at factors of economics and doing some of the work you do with the global studies? Yeah, no, so I, I, I mean, the, the, the short answer is I come by it honestly. The longer answer is a little bit more convoluted. So, so growing up, the one thing that I knew that I did not want to do with my life was be a pediatric hematologist oncologist. <laughs> and the reason is, so my dad is actually a pediatric hematologist oncologist. 
And so not that I didn't like like my dad or, or anything, but who wants to be what their parents do? You obviously want to do other things. So I figured I'd be a lawyer or work for the Foreign Service or something. <laughs> my family history is very international. Um, I'm ethnically Indian, but um, I come from a family of significant migration. And so my great-grandparents uh, migrated from India to Southern Africa, what was then Rhodesia, and now is Zimbabwe and Zambia. And so I have ties growing up that I would spend several months a year in, in, in Southern Africa. And I just from that, from those experiences growing up and the amount of time that I spent abroad, knew that that was uh, something that I knew would have to be a part of my career. And so as I kind of went through college, I got, I was a history major. I was focused on modern Russian history. I was very interested in Cold War dynamics. Uh, and then got interested in the health aspects of development as I took um, just interest, took courses at um, an undergraduate. And the, the, the intersection between international development and health became one that to me was fascinating, both as an intellectual problem. Um, how does one actually prove that the two are interrelated beyond just the, the, the obvious? Um, and then what are the key interventions that can make or that can play a role in that? And so I, like most, like any good Indian son, ended up applying to medical school. Um, but uh, at that point, I realized that I needed and wanted to get a little bit more life experience. And so I had a great opportunity to work at the AMPATH program in Eldoret um, for over a year um, doing TB-HIV integration through the program at Brown University where I did my undergraduate. And that was, that was amazing because that really gave me like the hands-on basically helping to run a program where we were doing active case finding for TB and integration with HIV. So I, I saw health systems related issues. I was managing budgets. So the costing component, um, it led me to actually figure out how was, whether the intervention itself was cost effective. So understanding the mechanisms and principles behind that while in the field and trying to identify the interventions that were actually being successful in, in, in case finding versus not. So all of those activities um, really laid a foundation for recognizing that this is the kind of work that I wanted to do. But I also realized that in order to do that work at the level that I wanted to, the clinical component was clear. So during medical school, um, like anybody, you go through the, the, the years, and that's when I realized very quickly that pediatrics was, was what I found most interesting and actually ended up by accident being in a pediatric hematology and oncology rotation and then found that the patient population that we care for is just, I mean, it's it's the most engaging and rewarding activity uh, and, and clinical practice that I found um, during medical school. So I did residency in pediatrics um, and then uh, fellowship here at St. Jude in Hemonk and um, all throughout asking the question of how do I integrate in my love for global health with my clinical passion of Hemonk. And so really during med school between my third and fourth year, I, that's when it became clear because I took a year off there and did my MPH. And and during that year for me, um, and I don't recommend it for everybody, but for me, I kind of had two clear interests. And I was able to let, actually step out of the medical the medical field where it really is a see one, do one, teach one mentality. And it's not one that's lent to liberal arts and critical thinking to really explore how do two things that everyone is telling me are unrelated and cannot be combined into a viable career path. How How could I do that? And so as I started doing my MPH with that question in mind, that's when I started to get more interested in some of the epidemiologic questions, some of the simulation modeling approaches, some of the disease burden metrics. 
um, and obviously leveraging all that against understanding the health economics in order to then be able to start answering fundamental questions about prioritization, resource allocation, as well as um, starting to actually think about uh, how can we leverage some of that data in order to make decisions um, about treatment. And so that's kind of how I ended up where I'm at right now. That's great. Yeah, the path that you've walked to get there will interest a lot of listeners because, as I found, uh, trainees, both medical and in public health, and other people who are interested in global health, tend to have these interests in terms of health systems. You know, how how do we put the pieces together, as I say, to deliver health where it needs to be? And so your career path so far has been instructive of how someone can do that fruitfully. So I think there's a lot of people who can look to your example and benefit from seeing that someone's navigated it successfully and is a hemoc doctor, but isn't just doing clinical trials or drug development. And I, I would just add to that, you know, I got told that my fair share all along the way as well. And it wasn't in malice or bad advice. It was the truth that until recently, it was not a viable career path. And as we talk more, we can sh- I can share how I'm making it such. But ultimately, you know, and I say this to, to people who are who ask me this question, and I found it to be incredibly frustrating as advice, but it ended up being incredibly true. Uh, when I was in medical school, there was a, a crotchety old GI doc who was uh, relatively famous for creating those bags that they would put in the NICU over like the intestine on the kids that, um, I guess just cases kids. So anyway, I was, I was in his office. He was like one of my, you know, clinical lecturer, mentor people that was assigned to me. And so, you know, obviously he had a long and successful career. So I was just like, you know, what advice do you have for me as I, as I move forward? And like, this is not someone who gets hippy dippy, but like, he basically just told me, Nikhil, just follow your heart. And I was like, what, what am I supposed to do with that? Like, like absolutely like the least amount of help possible. But now in retrospect, when I look at the fact that, look, I wasn't going to give up on the point that I felt strongly that there was a space here for academic productivity, um, as well as generating evidence for advocacy to help children with cancer in low and middle income countries that could turn into a career path. And so Ultimately, I, I did, and it's true. I totally just followed my heart, what I wanted to do, and bold myself to get that to happen. Um, of course, I had a lot of luck along the way, um, but ultimately, that's kind of the, the name of the game: is take some risks and follow what you believe in, and where you think that you actually think that there's a, a possibility to do something good. Yeah. Well, it seems to have gotten you to a good place, so that's good advice. And so. You are at St. Jude, who has a global program that has, uh, I would describe it as it's blossomed in the last few years, just in terms of the volume of publications that are coming out and in the amount of reach um, that I've seen the program have. And you're also involved in WHO's Global Initiative for Childhood Cancer, these initiatives and with the St. Jude program. What has been coming to the foreground uh, and how do you see the landscape changing? Yeah, and, and I think this is a this is a really interesting and fundamental shift. and that actually. You know, I can speak to how I've seen it shift at St. Jude. I can speak to how I've seen it shift even at the WHO. And I can speak to it with our many, many partners all around the world. You know, one, one area where I don't have as much insight yet, which, you know, I only can say anecdotally is how it's shifting in the United States for trainees as well as other faculty. But, but speaking to those, those former first three, you know, here at St. Jude, uh, and full disclosure, you know, I interviewed Mark when he was applying for fellowship. So, he, he fully remembers, at least, that um, back then we were just kind of uh, one hallway team, and now we've blossomed into like over 
I don't know how many employees over two floors and, you know, there's just a ton of activity. The global um, program specifically. In our global program specifically. Yeah. And really what I can see is that the, there's a huge institutional commitment here um, because there's a recognition that uh, as we've just recently published in one of our papers, and I think this was one of the reasons why we were so successful, is that we recognize that ultimately it's not the biology that's going to determine whether a child who develops childhood cancer is going to survive or die their disease. It is actually um, the, the most important prognostic factor is where they are born and where they are treated. And ultimately, those two components will dictate what happens to survival because we can see great success in high-income countries to over 80%, but less than 10% in many places in the world. And so contextualizing that in terms of the need, um, you know, the institution has been amazing because they've really responded to that with um, substantial commitment to begin to integrate childhood cancer into the larger global health conversation. And so, and it's not just St. Jude, you know, SIOP and others have been working with the WHO on this, but I think because of the commitment from the institution to begin that process at the very least, I, I see a change happening. I see us now having conversations with ministries of health and with others on the ground in countries, as well as in the larger global health field. You know, you can talk about your large multilateral governmental agencies or non-governmental agencies that are also working in the field. And now there's like this recognition, oh, childhood cancer actually may be something as an investment to invest in, but also as, as an organizational group, as a community that, has, that is getting its act together and, and really now explaining to us why it needs to be justified in the language of, of global health. And I think as that process is continuing to evolve, as we continue to organize as a, global, as a pediatric oncology community, as well as insert ourselves into the global health community, it's it's already we're already seeing that on the ground with many of our partners around the world. All of a sudden, feeling like they're having greater awareness amongst their administrations and their hospitals and then the ministries of health that that there's something going on globally here that they are a part of, and there's excitement and there's this new sense of morale that is coming out of it, where um, that enthusiasm is is uh, is leading us really to, uh, I think. Um, begin to start making some major progress. Yeah, definitely. You can sense that there's a lot of energy in the field if you're paying attention to the literature and, I mean, to the press releases that are coming out. I've seen uh, global pediatric oncology in the news more in the last year or two than I, I, I mean, I think I ever have. So you've recently had several big publications come out that we're going to discuss uh, in just a little bit, but can you tell us what you've been publishing and what you've been paying attention to recently? Yeah. And so I, sh I should say that you know these these efforts really are a combined effort with multiple collaborators, um, each of them kind of with a different subset. I've had the opportunity to either lead or participate in each of them. But what's so cool about this is um, with the four papers that have been recently published in Lancet Oncology, I think we've told a really interesting story arc um, that now has, in some ways, uh, I think one. One person that and one of our collaborators globally said actually was a game changer in terms of how we approach contextualizing both the burden, but more important, the reason that we all feel that this should be a priority. And so really, this was uh, somewhat serendipitous that they, all of these initiatives kind of came together at the same time. And all of them have come together at the same time as a precursor to a, a forthcoming Lancet Oncology Commission, which... Um, I won't get into any more detail, but as many of the folks from SIOP and others in the community know, is a forthcoming um, project that we're all excited about. But um, so these four papers really started uh, in January, where we had a review paper published in Lancet Oncology, where it really set the foundation for how much, what do we know? What is 
what is the current state of our understanding for childhood cancer epidemiology, the incidence, the mortality, what groups are working on it, et cetera. And using that information, it really, the, the secondary question that was critical um, was where are the gaps? What's opportunities? What's missing? And what do the big groups that are producing these estimates, who are all co-authors on this paper with me, what do they think that we together can do better as recommendations to actually start enhancing our understanding of the epidemiology? And highlighting that you know, epidemiology isn't just counting numbers and counting cases for the sake of counting numbers and counting cases, but really, ultimately, these drive critical policy decision-making, both at the level of whether this is even something to invest in or not, but secondary to that. Um, how much resources each of these investments get and how they're allocated with countries at the country level, at the hospital level, and others. So good data is critical to making evidence-based decisions. I think that's a very simple and non-controversial commentary. I think what we tried to highlight here was that while there is some data, that there's a lot more that needs to be done to to ensure that the, the rigor and quality of that data is there. As a second piece, that came out, and this was in collaboration, and you recently had uh, Jennifer and Zach on, who could talk a little bit more about um, some of the methods that we used. But in that piece, really, what we wanted to do was highlight a question and a, and, a, and a point that as pediatric oncologists working in the field of global pediatric oncology know, but that the global health community and even the global cancer community failed to really recognize. And that is that there's a heck of a lot of children out there in especially low- and middle-income countries due to the complexity of diagnostics, as well as the, the, um, the challenges with, with, with fragmented health systems and, um, or just lack of health systems capacity, that there's a lot of children out there that are either missed as diagnoses and either die at home or are, are just never seen by a, a physician. Maybe they're seen in alternate, alternate health care areas, such as traditional medicine or just a pharmacy. And then secondary, there's substantial misdiagnosis. And there, those are patients that are diagnosed with TB or malaria or dengue, and as a result are counted in their death statistics as those diseases, but really had underlying oncologic disease. And whenever you have your models, they're all based on death registry data, and they're based on um, cancer registry incidence data. So if a patient never gets into a registry, and if a patient is given a wrong cause of death, then ultimately all of your statistics are going to be wrong and there's going to be a systematic bias. So we used a variety of methods that I, I think you've already gone into to come up with surrogate measures to identify, so hypothetically, what is the true incidence or at least the expected incidence of childhood cancer globally? And we found that likely it is twice that of what we're currently seeing. If you were to use surrogate measures uh, such as antenatal care as a proxy or, or vaccination as a proxy or oral rehydration as an access to, to, to therapy as a proxy. And so with that, now all of a sudden you're starting to, to, to show for the first time that delta or the gap. Here's the number um, that you get from IARC and, and IHME and others, the 200 to 225,000. That represents a critically important number. And this is not to, we shouldn't detract from the importance of those numbers because that represents the today value. That's how many children you can expect that are walking into your hospital or into your clinics today that need to be seen and have care and triage available for childhood cancer. However, there's another, probably in many low- and middle-income countries, two or three times that number that are not being seen at all. And so as you upregulate or as you increase capacity for your childhood cancer programs, those um, children are going to start to come out of the woodwork. And we've seen that experientially in Guatemala and other countries where if you build it, they will come. And so that 
that delta allows you to start planning for, okay, so I know I have this many, I know I'm seeing this, but I got to be expecting a lot more than that. So how do I, in the five, 10-year plan, start to incorporate that? Because most countries have five-year cancer control plans. The third paper was looking at global survival. So, you know, this is a this is a question that keeps coming up over and over again. It came up within the Global Initiative for Childhood Cancer because the byline for there is we want to take 30% survival around the world and increase that to 60%. But, um, you know, the 30% number that we came to was really a lot of back-of-the-envelope calculations. It wasn't done with systematic rigor. So we actually went and, um, again, this was the second piece of the model working with Jennifer and... Uh, and Zach really did a phenomenal job leading this effort. Um, we took and worked and collaborated with the Concord group. And for those of you that are not familiar, Concord is a global um, population-based cancer registry-derived survival data study. Um, and so it gives you survival data from population-based cancer registries for cancers and some childhood cancers, specifically the leukemias, CNS tumors, and uh, lymphomas. And so working with them to actually take the published data and, and make it more uh, micro in a lot of ways, we then were able to, uh, to run an analysis to really think about what does global survival look like? So if we were to expand the, the, our understanding of five-year net survival for the few countries that we have it, um, how can we expand that to understand the global survival number? And that's a number that's important from an advocacy standpoint, as well as to understand and contextualize where the major epicenters are for uh, potential improvement. And so... What we saw there was, again, similarly, um, this is, again, using only the 200 to 225,000 number, the, the number was closer to um, between 30, 40%. But that when you start to incorporate that undiagnosed cohort, um, the number actually falls closer to 21%. So if you assume that what we're seeing today, you're probably getting around 30, 30 uh, in the 30s um, percentile. But if you start to think about the, all those children that are never being diagnosed or misdiagnosed, the true um, survival rate is probably closer to 21, 22%. Um, and that's sobering, right? Because now you're talking about the complete flip of that 80% survival that we see in the United States and Europe that all of us are so, um, you know, that are, are appropriately so proud of when we, when, when we talk about childhood cancer as this modern med medical miracle. Um, the, the truth is that when you take the global proportions, um, we still are sitting at the, the, the other end of the spectrum. And so that paper, I think, you know, highlighted what I talked about earlier, which is that survival, the prognosis for survival is the most important one is where you're born and treated. And then finally, just published, um, published uh, on Monday in collaboration with the uh, Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation and led by Lisa Force, um, one of our fellows here at St. Jude, is, an, is the first analysis of global childhood cancer using a, a metric called the Disability Adjusted Life Year metric. And while that sounds a little wonky and jargony, what that really allows us to do is, is start to, using this method and using the statistic, we can now compare childhood cancer against all the other diseases in the world. And so the framework for, I, for, for, for the global burden of disease study is to literally look at the global burden of over 300 different diseases. And so now that childhood cancer is, is kind of an analyzed as separate and as one of those diseases that are being um, kind of looked at against others, we found a couple of key findings. And the first is that the burden of childhood cancer is actually much greater than we all thought it was. Even though it's a low incidence disease, and even though it's by definition a rare cancer, if you use the uh, NIH's definition of rare diseases, because a child who's diagnosed with cancer and who doesn't receive therapy 
is almost certainly going to die, the number of years of life lost are extraordinarily high because that means that it's a patient in many countries that could have lived for 50 or 60 more years. And so by having that early death, that's contributing to the burden of that disease. And so when you think about it in these health economic style terms, and then start to compare it to adult cancers as a group, and when you start to compare it to other child health illnesses, we see that overall childhood cancer is ranked, uh, ranked number six among all cancers, and then ranked ninth against, um, actually, is it fifth or sixth? Is that in terms of DALIs? Correct. Ah. So what we really found and were able to contextualize was where childhood cancer ranks against uh, two subgroups. So one of the challenges that we face on the global side is, is childhood cancer a, a cancer disease? And so there's a whole industry of cancer, right? Or is it a child health disease? And there's a whole child health uh, community that focuses on child health related issues. And so what we're able to do is contextualize childhood cancer in both communities. And so taking that 200, 225,000 incident cases and looking at the global burden, childhood cancer against all of the adult cancers actually ranks as the sixth largest burden. However, if you were to assume that um, the, this is only half of the true burden because of underdiagnosis um, and misdiagnosis, and you put that 400,000 number to bear, that actually shoots childhood cancer up to the second or third highest uh, driver of disease burden related to cancers in the world. And oh, wow. that's huge because yeah. that's something that, you know, we never talk about childhood cancer as that important. But even at six, it's hugely important because when you start to look at and you stratify that by sociodemographic index, which is a, you can think about as a, as a surrogate measure for development of countries, and you break that into high, high, middle, middle, low, middle, and low, in the high SDI countries or social demographic index countries, so think about Europe and the United States, childhood cancer ranks as number 22. And that's because we cure a lot of children, over 80% of them. And so there's a whole lot of other cancers that rank higher. However, and that's on the adult side, because survival for adult cancers is so low across the board. However, if you look in the low and low middle income countries, or especially low middle, low middle SDI countries, Childhood cancer is actually the number one driver of DALIs for all cancer subtypes in those settings. So it's actually the biggest cancer burden for, um, amongst all cancers in the low and low middle group. When you look at the child health argument, do we exist in the pediatrics realm? So their childhood cancer, again, using that 250, or sorry, 200 to 225 incident case model is ninth overall. But when you look in that middle income group, that low middle and the middle, it actually is the third or fourth leading burden of childhood illnesses in those settings um, behind things such as congenital birth defects and respiratory infections and such. When you start to look at what would happen if you were to count the children that we assume are missing, it jumps all the way into the top five. So now all of a sudden childhood cancer is in the top five causes of disability-adjusted life years or leading causes of, of morbidity and mortality for children globally. And so these are, these when you contextualize the, the comparative uh, framework, and it's not meant to be able to, to pick and choose winners and losers, but the bottom line is in, in, a, in, in global health, that's what prioritization at the end of the day becomes. It's about putting and contextualizing diseases against one another such that governments have the data 
um, and multiple inputs will be part of it. Only this is only one major input. There's also political reasons and and uh, social reasons, etc. But if we're able to put this as one of the reasons to say, look, this is a high burden, and look, this is something that is inter- that we have interventions for, and uh, and hopefully there's downstream effects by investing in childhood cancer. The government potentially could have, you know, for every dollar they invest, likely there's going to be civil civil society fundraising that'll help to match it or increase it because we've seen that with our foundations. And when you start to see the downstream effects of like investing in pick, uh, the childhood cancer helps nursing and PICU and radiation oncology and radiology, et cetera, as you start to see those downstream effects, then you start to have come up with a compelling argument. So all of these four papers have kind of had told the story arc over the last six months that I really uh, recommend people to read them kind of um, back to back or in, in, in sequential order, because what we've done now is started with what are the gaps, what are the problems, what, is the, what are the potential observed true incident numbers, what does survival look like today? And what is childhood cancer relative within the context of the global health agenda? Where does it lie and where should we be going? And so I think that's an incredibly transformative um, uh, um, discussion that now uh, hopefully will begin, the, this will begin to, to alleviate some of those uh, preconceptions about childhood cancers too small a burden or, or not uh, too insignificant a problem for us to, to, to be interested in. Yeah, I think transformative is a very uh, apt way to describe that story, because I think most people don't consider these counterfactuals that you were discussing, like what what would happen if we saved a child from cancer and what is the economic uh, consequences of this child now living a full, happy life? But more importantly, you know, what are the quality of life consequences of this child now surviving his disease? And similarly, with not just looking at who we are diagnosing, but who we are missing as well, and including that in the survival statistics. And so with this compelling story that you just told us, you've obviously been thinking about it for a while. Have you seen it gain traction in terms of maybe the global oncology community that you're around, or even in the global policy spaces that you're in? How have you seen this story be received? So honestly, this has been incredibly well received from from my perspective, and I'm obviously a biased party to that. But I honestly think that we've done several things in, in, in a way that has helped both our own community as well as um, helped to to underpin some of our arguments and discussions with the broader global health community. So within our own community, the conversation about mis and misdiagnosis was one that we've always had in the halls and corridors of our offices, but hadn't really been really thoroughly in- interrogated in the literature and um, and quantified in a meaningful way. And this really begins to, to highlight the, what that delta, what that gap looks like, and it's not insignificant. So to that extent, I think that, you know, bringing to light that cancer registration, while a critical component to our epidemiology toolkit, cannot just be the only one is, uh, that, we, that we use to factor in our advocacy arguments um, has been really, I think, important. And also that it also highlights the importance of registration itself, because ultimately we, we need to do a better job of finding and capturing all these children. And, and then that leads to quality improvement opportunities and, and downstream effects there. Secondarily to that, within the global health community, you know, I, as I was kind of telling you earlier, one of the things that, that I think we've done is we have brought, because of the, all of the initiatives that are ongoing, the Global Initiative for Childhood Cancer, all of the WHO workshops that are going on that, that myself and others, and this, again, I want to highlight that there's many, many, many co-collaborators and, and experts working in this field that have been a part of this. As we have been educating the global health community, 
we have seen the lexicon change from one that is, well, this is the way it's done, or that doesn't, that's not relevant to our mission, or that's not true to, oh, complete 180s, to like, oh, there actually is a large number of children that are never diagnosed in the first place. Oh, we need to factor those in as we think about um, the scale-up of health services. And oh, there is a huge disparity in survival, less than 10% in some settings, and that means that we're starting from scratch and need to really think about how do we in those settings, begin the process of engaging with governments and from the top down. So at every level, I think that uh, what it's done is begin to take our language into the global health uh, community and, and contextualize it. But it's also been well received within the global health community to, to, you know, our first, I think, challenge with the Global Initiative for Childhood Cancer, amongst others, was, well, great, Childhood Cancer has their act together. I'm glad they're doing this. But man, there's so many other things that we need to work on. Why is childhood cancer now all of a sudden like jumping to the top of the agenda? So now, okay, so childhood cancer is a thing. Like, let's let's do something about this. Let's get on board and let's actually, uh, okay, before we were going to sit on the sidelines and see what happens. Now let's see how can you know how can we get involved before this train goes too far? Yeah, you said something there that the you created a lexicon for how we talk about childhood cancer and. I think that's a great way to put it. And truth be told, the idea that we need a common set of concepts to communicate both the burden of childhood cancer, the the consequences of it going untreated, as well as the opportunities for treating it and for uh, fixing this problem. Like I think that the initiatives that you're describing and the the recent work um, is going a long way in creating these common concepts that everybody in the field can uh, but can ingest and then use, um, and so that we have a a common language for the different problems that we face. I mean, honestly, that's part of the reason for starting the podcast is to try to disseminate similar ideas that occur everywhere in the world that don't always get talked about in aggregate, but then everybody has a common way to speak about these problems. So I think that's an incredibly important and somewhat underappreciated aspect of this work. And and I I agree. Obviously, I say I agree, but I mean, that's self-evident, right? Um, (laughs) But uh, I would say that we're in a system of there was a lot of good work being done over the last 20 years. And a lot of people had really moved the needle forward um, through a lot of the twinning work they had done in others. But what we also had was a static campaign of we had pediatric oncologists talking to one another and they got it, but they weren't communicating with the global health groups. And you had the global health groups that were just ignoring childhood cancer because it was too expensive and too, um, too and not important enough for the priorities that they were otherwise setting. It was just assumed that why would we even, that's so far down the line, let's not even look at it. I think what we've done and what we're doing is by bringing pediatric oncology along and, knowing, and saying the things that we've all said, but turning that into the language of global health, we were, we're moving the needle and, and actually now bringing it forward and combining the two fields. And I would just highlight that in order to do that, there has to be a recognition that global pediatric oncology is a discipline unto itself, just like any other discipline within academia. So whether you take, you know, with the disease-based discipline, so ALL, AML, rhabdo, et cetera, or if you think about it as even broader than that, like you think about medical anthropology or you think about um, other, uh, you know, health economics, all of these multidisciplinary areas um, have a certain skill set that you need to have in order to be able to then advance in that area. And I think one of the things that I'm hoping that we're showing is, and getting back to where we started with this conversation, is that there's a lot to be done here. 
and there's a lot of skill sets here that just because I went to med school and did my residency and fellowship doesn't mean I have any capacity to be able to talk about or do. And so really, there's a, a level of specialization here that um, to begin to have that conversation that we need to that we need to start developing in our in our in our junior faculty and our trainees so that we can continue to progress forward and um, and grow as a community. Yeah, no, I agree. It takes uh, skills that aren't common to medically trained people. And it takes a perspective that I think doesn't come common to uh, a lot of us that, you know, we, we work for the good of the patient in front of us. And sometimes we don't scale up that vision to the health system as a whole. Just talking about this idea of a shared language and shared uh, concepts from how, how global childhood cancer uh, can be addressed. I remember when I was on the fellowship trail and interviewing at different places, uh, a few places that will remain nameless, didn't understand this concept. I would say, you know, I'm interested in global oncology. There's a lot of work that can be done in this field and there's a lot of energy here, but I think that the energy hadn't kind of blossomed to the forefront. And so I got a lot of blank looks and a lot of like, you want to do what? How about a clinical trial? I think it comes back to this idea of a shared understanding that it's possible. It's not only possible, it's cost-effective it benefits the health system as a whole and governments that uh, work in this area. And all of that is our assets for achieving the goal of the WHO initiative to achieve a 60% cure rate. So with these concepts in hand, as you've gone to different politicians or let's say people who exist in an ecosystem out of the normal uh, healthcare system, what have your conversations been like? Yeah, no, I mean, obviously it's it's putting, you know, road to the rubber a little bit. Um, and we're still at the very beginning of this conversation with many folks. But um, I think by because we have direct WHO engagement now, uh, we we have an open door to to governments in a way that to, to share and educate um, about these topics in a way that we've never had before. And so that's what I think is really cool and what's fundamentally changing now um, as we think about where does childhood cancer lie and, and are we getting to um, the ability where, like, okay, now maybe we should include something with childhood cancer in in our cancer control plans, because now cancer control plans and governments are actually trying to figure out how they create them. Now we're starting to insert childhood cancer within that within that conversation and best practices, and and I'm trying to help them workshop out what are their priorities um, and how do they go through with it. So what we have now is actual data to back up the conversations that we had. Um, so we're not just speaking from only a purely advocacy angle. Um, but we're also speaking from an evidence-based angle, and you know, you you kind of highlighted earlier some of the some of the the, the, the take-home points about where this work now takes us, and I think you're highlighting um, some of the ongoing work that myself and many others have, both in terms of return on investment work as well as cost-effectiveness and work that we've done a lot of with costing and cost-effectiveness, but then also thinking about how does that become a part of decision-making and and also be, uh, truly evidence-based adaptive clinical tri uh, treatment protocols and, and guidelines and all that kind of stuff. So all of this is synergistic and interrelated from an epidemiologic standpoint. And uh, there's a lot more to do in this field to begin to really uh, solidify the gains that we've started to make. 
Yeah. Well, you gave us a good overview of the burden of disease work that you've done with looking at different uh, global estimates, as well as simulating global estimates of incidence and survival, uh, and then looking at DALIs, the Disability Adjusted Life Years, with the Global Burden of Disease Study. And then you mentioned the cost-effectiveness angle, that uh, there's some emerging evidence that it is, in fact, economically beneficial, or at least not as ex- nearly as expensive as people would assume to treat childhood cancer in low- and middle-income countries. So could you give us a big-picture overview of what evidence has recently come out? Yeah, and I mean, actually, this story starts actually when I was a resident. You know, as I was still trying to piece together how do I develop an academic career in global pediatric oncology, and, you know, I always came back to the number one reason I was told, um, much like you were, that global childhood oncology is not a viable career path and it's not really a thing. Um, You know, there was, it's not a, like, there's the, they can't do it. We'll leave the they question for another time. But there's also that it costs too much. And so to me, that never sat well because it was a, it was an assumption. It was a statement based off of affordability maybe, but it wasn't necessarily based on true cost effectiveness. And so I actually uh, started that by by doing a DALI-based analysis and, um, you know, looking at the, what happens to that five-year-old if they were able to survive and if you put in a variety of inputs to like say 50% survival, what is the threshold that one could spend? So in other words, how much money could you spend per case diagnosed with ALL or Wilms or whatever, and still maintain cost effectiveness within the context of a country? And so there there were health economic values like GNI per capita and GDP and other things and the incidence numbers, et cetera. And then survival, and and, a couple, and then basically we 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 were able to then adjust based off of quality of life measures, and and have some sensitivity analysis where we have early mortality to address some of the early mortality um, concerns, as have been published from CCSS and and other large cohort studies. So as we pulled all of that data together, uh, we started to show that look, the threshold that one could spend and still maintain. The two layers of cost effectiveness um, that the WHO has, one is cost effective, so an intervention being cost effective, and then the WHO is very, very um, creative and has a second tier of uh, like a better answer, which is very cost effective. So you can either be cost effective in intervention or very cost effective in intervention. And this is defined by the WHO choice or choosing health interventions that are cost effective uh, framework. And so we basically figured out how much one could spend to become cost-effective and very cost-effective. And the bottom line is, you could spend a heck of a lot of money and still be cost-effective and very cost-effective. Now, from there, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of work for the next several years, but uh, the real question that still was out there on everybody's mind was, how much does it really cost to treat childhood cancer? So we know thresholds, we have an inkling that threshold, that it's below that threshold, but do we know that for sure? So. As a next step, we actually, um, and that this was work done with collaborators at Toronto Sick Kids, and then um, our very, very strong collaborators in uh, El Salvador, in Ghana, and in Mexico. We looked at each of those settings and did a very, very in-depth micro-costing approach, which is, if you think of a micro-costing, think about going to the grocery store when you have a recipe. So you need a recipe, so that means you need to figure out what you want to cook, and then we're going to cook, in this case, treating childhood cancer. And then all of the different ingredients that go into that recipe. So then you have to think about um, the pharmacology, the pharma- pharmaceuticals, the uh, room and board, the personnel, et cetera, or, you know, obviously all your vegetables and proteins, et cetera. And then the second, and then after that, you actually have to start filling in like the quantities and everything. So 
much like when you go to the grocery store and you're 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 getting all your ingredients for a recipe, microcosting is the same exact thing except applied to how much does it cost to treat something. So we had a very extensive process of developing um, these spreadsheets with all of the different cost inputs, um, and then we went and worked. And our collaborators were amazing. They went and uh, we worked with all of their financial departments. We had probably more accounting related effort in this than um, an actual clinical related effort in this initiative. And so then we came up with the costs and we found that um, in Ghana, it was 10,000 to run their cancer center and all of the services that they employ and provide, it costs about $10,000 per case. Um, and that accounts for like cases that are that deaths and all that kind of stuff. And then the same thing for El Salvador was about 30,000 and then in Mexico is about 50,000. And so we saw that there was a trend developing in there. And so we kind of took that forward and um, basically have now shown that, that that's the amount that one could do for a center. And then applied that same cost-effectiveness framework that I had developed back in um, residency and then showed that um, under a variety of sensitivity analyses that by and large, the childhood cancer treatment is very cost-effective. Um, even when accounting for extreme scenarios like early death and increased morbidity due to uh, late effects. And that's just our work. There's been um, additional two other, uh, several, there's probably several others, but there's been work out of China looking at retinoblastoma at the cost of treating childhood cancer, again, like a micro-costing micro approach. There's been work in, um, in Rwanda, micro-costing approach that recently was published. And then there's also been um, some work where it combined a clinical trial with outcomes and a microcosting approach for Burkitt lymphoma and then looked at the cost effectiveness. And that's the only one I know of that actually looked at a specific cancer. And that one's super cool because the Uganda paper led by Avi um, at Toronto SickKids uh, really was the first one that I've seen where they've taken a specific high incident cancer in the setting and layered on clinical trial data and showed the effectiveness component as well as doing a microcosting and, and showed that it wasn't just very cost effective. It was like it blew it out of the park in terms of the amount that one actually needed to spend to potentially uh, save the child with Burkitt lymphoma. And it, was, it, would, it would be up there with uh, some of the, the quote-unquote goodbyes that you might see at the WHO. Wow. So the, overall, the evidence is consistent that this is a cost effective or, I guess, very cost effective thing to do. Yeah, I think, the, I think there's, there's more and more evidence coming out on cost. Um, both at the center level. We need more data on individual cancer subtypes. Mm -hmm. That's an area where I think that we need methodologic um, effort as well as actual uh, costing data. And so at the, so because, you you know, right now, just building a center isn't exactly the best intervention. You need to start to think about which cancers you want to prioritize in settings where you may not have the resources to do everything. We need to obviously layer on things like palliative care and, and, and abandonment reduction um, interventions and things like that as, as, as inputs into this. And then the, on the, um, and that's just on the costing side. And then on the effectiveness side, you know, to me, this is, and I, um, when I was uh, writing an editorial for Avi's paper, this is where I felt like we as a community need to do a better job is when centers and, and when, um, when, we are proposing clinical trials in low and middle income country settings. We need to be embedding cost effect, costing and secondary aims, uh, at the very least exploratory aims, into the clinical protocols themselves. Because ultimately, yeah, the effectiveness is critical. It's going to be important to show survival that's, and, and um, feasibility, efficacy, all that kind of stuff as your primary aim. But we also need to be, be um, detailing and cataloging the cost in order to be able to then actually take that and turn that around into uh, 
real policy where it can be can be taken from a pilot or a single institution to a population level. See, I imagine that's something that a lot of physicians and clinical scientists may not be comfortable with. So how do they go about designing a trial that would include costs? I think the the first thing is just reach out to your public health schools, reach out to those of us working in the area. You know, there's there's many different avenues one could take that you, that depends on the on the comfort level. But the bottom line is it, it depends on collaboration. Just like there's you know many of the clinical trials that we run have biologic aid, and so I feel very comfortable walking over to one of our basic science labs. Um, and saying like, look, I don't know how to do single cell sequencing, but you know, in this setting, no one's looked at this ethnic population, or no one's looked at this particular mutation, or no one's, or maybe we want to look at this particular issue and and go to, and then I ask them to help me write the aim and reincorporate that in. The same is true for epidemiologic and health economic aims. So, in the same, and of course, the quality of life aims. You know, we we started to see patient reported outcome measures become more and more integrated into clinical trials. I think you could have said the same thing about five years ago, and probably still today, unfortunately, that many clinical investigators still don't feel comfortable with patient-reported outcomes, promise scales, utility measures, et cetera. And so as we now start to realize that this is important, we need to start having that same conversation with costing. And then you just collaborate um, and find the people working in this field. There's many, many of them outside of cancer as well as inside of cancer, and you start to to, to build up the, the approaches and the methods, it's, it's really not that complicated. I appreciate that perspective that uh, we need to add on. You've told us a lot about your recent work, looking at global estimates and looking at survival estimates, and then uh, also quantifying burden of disease in terms of DALIs. And now we just heard about uh, the costing work and how there's emerging evidence that it is cost-effective and very cost-effective to treat childhood cancer globally. So as our time together is coming to a close, what's next for you? Um, all this information in hand, where do you go from here? Yeah, no, I mean, there's a ton of work that needs to be done still. You know, just showing something is cost-effective just opens the door. I think it was brought up at one of the meetings, like just showing that it's cost-effective is great, but that doesn't address the affordability components. Um, that doesn't address the how are we actually going to uh, finance some of these elements. So I think there's going to be a ton of work, hopefully, as we continue to progress. Looking at key measures. So first of all, I talked about some of the areas within the costing work that remain to be seen and, and still need to be done. And, and and even looking within that subset, like looking at disparities and and differences within you know pharmaceutical costs and distribution supply chains and other things like that. But then, as we start to think about broader to all of those questions, uh, what are the affordability concerns? So how do we actually pay for the upfront cost of thirty thousand dollars to treat a child with cancer? You know, governments, despite the fact that all of us strongly believe, at least amongst our my my like core peers that I can speak for, um, in universal health coverage and the importance of government and public sector engagement, the realistic truth is that that's not something that's going to happen tomorrow. We have great evidence in, from, from China and the Philippines and others where governments have stepped up and started to cover underneath these UHC initiatives like low-risk ALLs and ALLs in general and other, um, and in Mexico, they've covered childhood cancer with Seguro Popular. But when you start to think about globally, we, we all have to be honest with ourselves and realize that we can only advocate so far for universal health coverage. At the end of the day, there's going to be a stopgap. So how do we empower the local foundations that exist? And how do we start to partner with them on the clinical side to, to integrate and interact more closely so that 
the, the foundations understand the clinical needs and the clinical teams understand the perspective of the foundations for what they can and cannot provide. And where does the civil society come step in where the government um, is unable to? And so there's many, many examples throughout the world, many of which that, that I work with directly in Sub-Saharan Africa or that others work with in um, St. Jude or at uh, Texas Children's and, uh, you know, Sick Kids and the, all of the institutions that are, that, um, that are doing great work in the space. So how do we start to tackle that question? What's the right um, private, pa private partnership mixture? When do we start to develop interventions that are then... Um, taking away the pressure from governments to intervene and what are the best practices and legal frameworks. There's this area, there's, there's so much more to do that this expands to beyond just cost and cost effectiveness that I think that uh, there's going to be plenty of work for, ma for many, many others to, uh, to take on over the coming years. Yeah, I think that's well said. And then final question. So if somebody's interest was piqued by these topics in terms of cost effectiveness or estimating the burden of disease, do you have recommendations for specific skills or specific training that someone should pursue to get involved in this area? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, so it depends on the level of the individual, right? So for trainees, you know, I, and, and we kind of talked a little bit about this um, before, but, you know, getting that MPH is important for multiple reasons, and I'll, and I'll give you my frank perspective. People may disagree with it, but at the end of the day, those three letters are meaningful. I mean, I've had on grant applications, the fact that I have an MPH um, lend weight, but for real practical reasons, it doesn't mean as much. Uh, it is good to have exposure to like the Biostats 101 and the Epi 101, but, the, the, but as you go through your medical career, you're going to forget a lot of those details if you don't hone up on it. So what I would then recommend is that if you get your MPH or you're getting your MPH, you've got to get your hands dirty and find a project how you can start applying those skill sets and start actually doing the experiential learning. And, you know, in Europe and in other places, a lot of times that's how their, MP that's how their PhDs are structured, is um, very much like a, an independent project-related activity. But for us, that ends up being our two or three years worth of, of research and protected time during fellowship. And so... You choosing a project that you can get your hands dirty on and actually start to learn the methods and the approaches and and start applying them because at the end of the day it's just like being a doctor. Um, you're not going to learn a doctor by reading um, the textbooks. You need to actually start practicing the art, applying and practicing and thinking about like okay, so how do I calculate dallies? How do I how do I do data wrangling where I pull in multiple different data sets and start to understand the pros and cons of each of the data inputs that I have and start understanding what are the assumptions that you're making in your models and then transparently relaying that to your audience, but then building on that and, and using that as an opportunity to advocate for better data. How do I then start to, uh, to understand the, the quantifiable skills that are there and how this can be then arranged as an advocacy point as well as a, as a policy point? So all of these are skill sets that only come by applying that. So you know, as, if you're an early trainee or if you're thinking about fellowship, uh, what I would encourage you to do is, I think what, what, what Mark has done, but as, as many of us that are now here do is, you know, take with a grain of salt the constant feedback that you're going to get that global pediatric oncology is not really a thing, that you can't make a career in it, and really start to focus on what you feel is uh, if, what really interests you and do it. Honestly, you know, there's many of us out there that would be happy to support, whether it's in this particular realm or any of the other many different um, disciplines that may be underrepresented in terms of academic scholarship within the field. That's great. So if people are interested in this, is it okay if they reach out to you? Oh, of course. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I am always 100% available by email or we can by chat or whatever needs to happen. 
Okay, great. Yeah, we will have Nick Hill's email on the website, ghccpod.com. So you can go there to the episode page and you can find both his email as well as we'll post links to the papers that he's been referencing, these Lancet papers that recently came out. So you can find all that stuff at the website. Okay, well, we've, we're coming up on an hour. Is there anything else that hasn't been said that uh, you'd like to say, Nikhil? No, this is great. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Your perspective is just both a breath of fresh air in terms of you give voice to a lot of things that I've been thinking and haven't been able to put into words. Um, and it, it's also really valuable to the global community to uh, to put these various pieces together in a global pediatric oncology specific way. So thank you for your work. And we ex- are excited to see where it takes you in the future. Thanks. Thanks for having me. 